Serving the people of the Hudson Valley, St. Luke's Cornwall Hospital proudly presents another edition of Doc Talk. Here's Melanie Cole. There are several treatment options for obstructive sleep apnea. While CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, is the most popular treatment for sleep apnea, there are other therapies available. My guest today is Dr. Anita Bola. She's the medical director of St. Luke's Cornwall Hospital Sleep Center. Dr. Bola, let's start with some of the risk factors for sleep apnea. What are those? Hi, Melanie, and thanks for having me back on this podcast series. Um, So uh, the factors that increase the risk for sleep apnea would be um, excess weight. So obesity uh, greatly increases your risk for sleep apnea. There are fat deposits in the tongue, the soft palate, and the back of the throat, and these uh, can uh, obstruct the breathing. Um, Having a neck circumference, um, uh, patients who have thicker necks will have narrow airways, so collar size in men greater than 17 inches is is a risk factor for sleep apnea. Um, And then a narrow airway could also um, 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 block the air, uh, especially in children, you know, where where there's tonsils and adenoids uh, enlarged, um, can cause sleep apnea, as can craniofacial abnormalities such as retrognathia. Retrognathia is a condition which the lower jaw is set back, and uh, these patients may um, uh, develop sleep apnea. Um, being male carries a two- to three-fold increased risk for having sleep apnea than women. However, when women, um, uh, when women gain weight or uh, when they reach uh, menopause, their risk approaches that of men. Um, being older increases the risk um, of uh, developing sleep apnea, and there is a higher prevalence in certain races, such as African Americans. Asians also have a risk that's comparable to that in Western countries. Um, nasal congestion is a huge, big risk factor. Uh, we see this a lot in our practices. If you have difficulty breathing through your nose, whether from an anatomical obstruction like deviated septum or allergies, you're more likely to develop sleep apnea. Um, a family history of sleep apnea may increase your risk. Um, having an underactive thyroid, a condition called hypothyroidism, um, is a risk factor, as is polycystic ovarian disease. Um, acid reflux um, is a risk factor. And then the use of alcohol and sedatives, uh, which are all muscle relaxants, um, can worsen uh, sleep apnea. Uh, and lastly, smokers have almost a threefold increase in um, um, sleep, developing sleep apnea than patients who have never smoked before because smoking is an upper airway irritant, increases the amount of inflammation and fluid retention in the, uh, in the upper airway and just makes it narrower. Wow, that is certainly a lot of risk factors and a lot of people that are at risk for sleep apnea. And so what are some of the medical conditions associated with it? Comorbidities, as it were. What can sleep apnea do that can cause other issues and vice versa? What other issues can also contribute? Right. So um, high blood pressure is, is probably like the best known medical comorbidity associated with sleep apnea. And this has to do with the sudden drop in the oxygen levels during sleep, which increase the blood pressure and they strain the cardiovascular system. Um, Having sleep apnea will increase your risk of high blood pressure uh, by about 50%. And the converse is also true. And sometimes patients will present with newly diagnosed high blood pressure and we will screen them 
for symptoms of sleep apnea because the association is so great. Um, we also see often that uh, blood pressure will often become refractory to treatment with medications if the sleep apnea is present and remains untreated. Um, uh, obstructive sleep apnea also increases your risk of recurrent heart attacks, um, uh, stroke, uh, and abnormal heartbeats, we call them arrhythmias, and the most common arrhythmia associated with sleep apnea is called atrial fibrillation. Um, this also carries a high risk of stroke, um, and uh, what we do see is actually we have a number of patients referred by the cardiologist with newly diagnosed um, atrial fibrillation who screened positive for sleep apnea. Um, because what, what we've seen is that atrial fibrillation will often recur uh, after ablation or after shocking if the underlying sleep apnea remains untreated. Um, then if you have a heart uh, disease, uh, these multiple episodes of low blood oxygen or hypoxia during the night can sometimes lead to sudden death from an irregular heartbeat. Uh, heart failure, up to one-third of patients with heart failure will also have sleep apnea, both central and obstructive. You know, I, I don't have time to cover uh, central sleep apnea, um, uh, during this podcast, but um, uh, obstructive sleep apnea can make heart failure worse, and these patients often have a higher readmission rate uh, to the hospitals and a higher morb morbidity um, compared to those who don't, um, and, and this is one condition where CPAP really does help. Uh, and then type 2 diabetes uh, and insulin resistance are, are, have a high association with sleep apnea. And the converse is also true because these are two very common conditions. Sleep apnea and type 2 di diabetes often coexist uh, in, in up to 40% of patients. Uh, and we often, as sleep specialists, are invited to go and give talks in the diabetic clinics where we talk to the newly diagnosed um, um, uh, diabetics and ask them if they have any um, uh, symptoms of snoring or daytime sleepiness. In other words, we screen them because the association is quite uh, strong. Um, conversely, patients who have newly diagnosed um, uh, sleep apnea uh, should also be screened for diabetes by measuring and following their hemoglobin A1C. So if I see somebody with sleep apnea, uh, I'll ask uh, that they get their hemoglobin A1C checked. Um, erectile dysfunction and low testosterone levels in men um, can be seen. Uh, sleep apnea can also, um, act, uh, this is actually very interesting, sleep apnea can lead to high-risk pregnancy, um, a condition called preeclampsia, during which uh, pregnant patients can get, you know, dangerously high blood um, pressure levels um, and uh, um, and in addition, uh, sleep apnea in pregnant patients can also cause gestational diabetes and some um, low birth weight um, uh, babies uh, born. Um, then sleep apnea also increases the risk of depression, and, and this is especially true in patients who have severe sleep apnea. And, and there have been studies done showing this, that there's been a great association, especially in men. Um, uh, we've also heard about sleep apnea increasing the risk of cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's dementia in the elderly patients. Dr. Bola, tell us about some non-CPAP treatment options for sleep apnea. People hear about CPAP. They hear about it in the media. They've heard that they're not that comfortable. Adherence could be an issue. Some people want to look into other options. So review some of the non-CPAP treatments for us, whether it's weight loss or some of the dental devices we've heard about. Just give a brief review of some of the others. Sure. Um, so it's weight loss 
is beneficial. However, it's hard to lose weight because you're so tired if you have sleep apnea. Um, in, in terms of positional therapy, there are a number of positional devices available that help to keep you off your back. One of them is um, uh, called a Zuma positional sleeper. And these are uh, typically uh, uh, could be an option in patients who have mild sleep apnea where the sleep apnea has been determined to be greater in the supine position. So if the patient has supine positional dependent sleep apnea and it's mild, they could be a candidate for uh, the Zuma positional sleeper, which is an FDA-approved modality. There are other non prescription treatments such as breathe right strips, nasal cones, and even Provent, um, uh, which um, have variable results. Uh, in terms of uh, the non-treatment, uh, non-CPAP options, for mild to moderate sleep apnea patients who are uh, CPAP intolerant, they could be candidates for what is called a custom-fitted oral appliance made by a dental sleep specialist, uh, and one such is called a mandibular advancement device. Um, uh, this may be easier to use. However, there are some issues with TMJ and, and measuring compliance is, could be an issue. Uh, surgical options uh, are usually sought uh, after only if other treatment options have failed. So generally, you'll give the patient about a three-month trial of other treatments such as CPAP uh, before surgery is considered. Um, and typically, the patient would be evaluated, uh, examined, uh, and have an endoscopy performed by an ENT surgeon to look at the airway passages to see where the obstruction is. So some of the surgical options would include tissue removal, procedure called UPPP. Uh, this can be done surgically or through uh, radio uh, frequency ablation. Um, other um, options, surgical options are nasal surgery if the patient has some form of a nasal obstruction such as a deviated septum, a polyp, or turbinate hypertrophy. These may actually help the patient breathe better, but may not necessarily cure the sleep apnea. Uh, for patients who have moderate to severe sleep apnea who are CPAP intolerant, there is the jaw um, positioning surgery, um, such as a mandibular, uh, sorry, a maxillary um, a mandibular advancement. That could be an option. These surgeries are typically performed by um, oral surgeons or maxillofacial surgeons. Uh, in this procedure, the jaws pulled forward from the remaining of the fa facial bones. Um, then there's hypoglossal nerve stimulation, which has been in the news um, uh, more recently. And um, Inspire happens to be FDA approved. Uh, uh, this requires a surgical procedure to in insert a stimulator uh, for the nerves that control the tongue uh, uh, movement, and that's called the hypoglossal nerve. Uh, the, uh, the stimulation helps keep the tongue in a position that keeps the airway open. So this procedure is performed in certain designated uh, centers and is performed by ENT physicians. Uh, and then in very rare, severe, life-threatening sleep apnea where all other treatment options have failed, the surgeon may need to perform a tracheostomy, which involves making a um, um, an opening in the neck and inserting a metal or a plastic tube through which the patient breathes at night, um, thereby bypassing the obstructive airway. I have actually never seen um, this in my entire career. Um, so those are really the non-CPAP uh, treatment options. 
What a wonderful summary, Dr. Bola. You went over those so beautifully and explained them all for people that really are concerned about trying CPAP. Wrap it up for us with your best advice, questions you would like patients to ask you. As the medical director of the Sleep Center at St. Luke's Cornwall Hospital, what would you like them to ask you when they have sleep apnea, they're concerned about CPAP, maybe they've tried it, maybe they haven't, what do you tell them, what would you like them to ask you? So when I see patients in my practice, um, I want to ask them about um, uh, comorbid conditions. And if they do have uh, comorbid conditions or if there's a risk for a comorbid condition, I would like to refer them uh, to the necessary specialist, such as the cardiologist or the endocrinologist, uh, to get screened for uh, these uh, conditions. Um, I um, educate them on uh, all these associations between uh, sleep apnea and comorbid conditions, which, uh, by the way, also includes the risk of accident proneness, um, driving accidents and, uh, um, you know, uh, accidents at the workplace, um, in addition, also decreased productivity at the job. Um, so I, I'll talk to them about that. Um, I um, I talk to patients about um, um you know, all the treatment options. And really, you know, I'm, I'm not in favor of pushing CPAP if the patient um, doesn't want it because this really is lifelong therapy. You could have somebody who would uh, accept CPAP initially, but they need to actually stay, use it for the rest of their lives. So they really need to be comfortable. So I try and elicit what the patient's preference is. And if the patient doesn't prefer CPAP, uh, I try and then um, send them to other specialists or, or I go over other treatment options and send them to other uh, specialists where they could benefit from therapy. Great information. Thank you, Dr. Bola, for being on with us today and, and sharing this great information with listeners so that they know what to ask and what to expect when they visit a sleep disorder center and they know how they can get help with their sleep apnea. Thank you again for joining us. This is Doc Talk presented by St. Luke's Cornwall Hospital. For more information, please visit stlukescornwallhospital.org. That's stlukescornwallhospital.org. I'm Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for tuning in.